Good morning again. If you'll turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 72, that'll be our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 72. Uh, if you haven't been here, uh, I'll let you know. We've, we've been working through the Psalms. Uh, we haven't hit every Psalm, but we've been working through little by little, and we come this morning to Psalm 72. Before we read that, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we look to you this morning, and uh, we look to you because we, we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. <coughs> we pray that you would uh, pour out your spirit on us, that you would enable me to teach your word clearly. We pray that you would help each one of us to hear it, uh, give us hearts uh, to receive it, and believe it and uh, live in light of it in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus. Uh, Father, we cannot do this in our own strength. We need your spirit. Uh, and so we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to those ends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 72. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations, May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bear gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Well, this morning we are going to talk about politics, sort of. 
And depending on what is happening in any given political moment, many in our day bounce back and forth from putting all their hope in some new politician to being disappointed with politicians altogether. We're going to talk about politics this morning because we're going to talk about Jesus as king. The Bible teaches that Jesus is a king. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is king? Not just a king, really, but the king of kings. What does it mean that he is, as the Bible puts it, the Lord or the Messiah, the Jewish anointed king? Well, it means that Jesus is a kind of political ruler. Uh, that is, he's a ruler over a body of people. Who is that body of people? Well, that body of people is the church. When speaking to the church in Colossae, Paul said, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The church, the, the people of God, make up the kingdom of Jesus. And when talking about things in these terms, what does it mean then to become a Christian? Well, it, it means to give your allegiance to a king. It means to acknowledge Jesus' reign, his rule, his authority, his jurisdiction as king, his right to speak in your life. Now, you may wonder, well, why in the world would I want to pledge allegiance to this man? Why would I want to bow the knee to him? I mean, what does he have that so many others do not? How do I know that he's not going to disappoint me like so many other politicians who have gone before? Besides, didn't we do away with kings a long time ago in our country? Why would I want to give up the great deal of freedom and autonomy and self-rule that I have and submit myself to a king? Why would I do that? That's a fair question. And our text this morning begins to answer it, at least. And uh, you can see the outline in the bulletin, on the back of the bulletin. There are three main points. Uh, first, we're going to establish the fact of Jesus' reign. And then talk about the character of Jesus' reign. And finally, tease out what it means to live as citizens under Jesus' reign. So first, the fact of Jesus' reign. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon. Solomon, who was the son of King David and, of course, became a king himself. Psalm 72 is essentially a, a prayer requesting God's blessing on the king for the sake of the people. And as we look at uh, this psalm, we're bound to say that this prayer was not fulfilled in Solomon's day, at least not fully. Uh, Solomon's reign was extensive, but not quite from sea to shining sea, as verse 8 talks about it. Um, some rulers did bring Solomon gifts in his day. The Queen of Sheba is a notable example. But verse 11 envisions all kings and all nations falling down and serving the king of Israel. The level of prosperity pictured here uh, is unparalleled, right? The flourishing of both produce and people alike. The, the temporal extent uh, mentioned here makes it either mere hyperbole or at least far more than Solomon could have enjoyed. Verse 5 talks about while the sun endures and as long as the moon. That's pretty long. Uh, verse 7 says, till the moon be no more. And verse 17 says, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. 
Well, King Solomon is well known, I guess, but his rule has not endured as long as the sun. Solomon started out well enough, you may remember, uh, but even Solomon had his scandals. And some missteps and bad policies and personal indiscretions in Solomon's life had ramifications in his dynasty for generations. And so we look for someone greater than Solomon to come. The prayer becomes a prophecy. The request becomes a hope. And throughout the Old Testament, there is this longing for some greater king. The hopes and dreams of Israel often revolved around the the idea of a Messiah to come, the anointed king who would come and make things right, who would defeat their enemies and restore prosperity to the nation. Well, throughout the Old Testament, there are longings and hopes and dreams, but only the glimmer of partial fulfillment, which only made one hunger for fullness all the more. When would a king come who would finally make things right? Well, then comes Jesus. And the first 30 years of his life actually looked relatively unimpressive. He came out of obscurity, but he gained a quick following, and uh, people did follow him. And yet there were scandals there, too. Jesus didn't quite seem to follow party lines. As a religious leader, he fraternized with tax collectors and drunkards and prostitutes. He allowed his disciples to, quote, work on the Sabbath, at least according to the Pharisees' laws. He claimed to be God, and he claimed in the Roman world to be, be a king. He was put to death for those claims. You may remember the Jewish ruling council uh, didn't like his claim that he was God, and the Roman government didn't like his claim that he was a king. And of course, his crucifixion should have been the end of the story, the end of this upstart wannabe king. But that was actually the beginning, because three days later, his disciples tell us he rose from the dead and showed up alive and well. They saw his pierced hands and feet, if there was any doubt that it was him. And he ate and drank with them to prove that he was not merely a ghost. And he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's a pretty bold claim, all authority. But that is what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You may remember, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, Peter preached, one, they saw him risen from the dead. Two, this was in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ. And therefore, three, this Jesus, risen from the dead, was Lord, was Christ, was the anointed king that God promised to send. You see, this is the way the New Testament establishes the the kingship of Jesus, by providing eyewitness testimony to his resurrection and demonstrating that his resurrection was in fulfillment of God's promises, promises given to the Messiah, promises like that found in Psalm 16. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And then the New Testament proclaims God has fulfilled his promises to set up a Jewish king over Israel who will rule over all the earth. And God did that by raising Jesus from the dead. Well, we'll talk more about the resurrection, of course, next week. 
But let's move on to talk about the character of Jesus' reign. Jesus has risen as the king of Israel who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But what kind of a king is he? Well, as we read through Psalm 72, we see, see at least five characteristics of Jesus' reign found in this psalm. And each one is both fulfilled in part under various Israelite kings, but each one is only fulfilled fully in the coming of Jesus. And so first is he cares for the needy. In our day, uh, we tend to think of politicians as those who line their pockets and live it up on the backs of hardworking citizens. At least that's the stereotype. And authority is often abused in that way, uh, in our day as in every day. But not so with King Jesus. What we see is he cares for the needy. You see this in verses 2 and 4 and 12 to 14. Solomon prays in the beginning of the psalm, uh, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. See, giving justice to the poor was one of the primary roles of the king. Why would that be the case? Well, because in that day, your protection depended on your family. And if you were wronged as an individual, your, your family, your clan, your tribe, they were the ones who ensured that the wrong was righted. But what happened if you had no family? What happened if your husband died? Or if your adult sons died? Well, then you were left alone and vulnerable. Because of the, the strong family, familial ties in those days, the true poor were those who had no one. No one to protect them, no one to defend them, no one to provide for them. And you see that in verse 12 when it says that the righteous king would be the one who delivers the needy when he calls and the poor and him who has no helper. Right? So it's the king's job to deliver the oppressed, to protect the vulnerable, and to care for those who have no one else to care for them. And this means not only, uh, according to verse 4, defending the cause of the poor and delivering the children of the needy, but also crushing the oppressor. And how else do you ensure that this one who, who took advantage of his position by taking advantage of the poor will not do it again? Well, in Israel, the king's role was to put down the oppressor, to punish him so that he wouldn't continue oppressing. How does Jesus fulfill this role of the king to care for the poor? Well, there are at least four ways we could probably think of more, but I'll just mention four briefly. Um, one, Jesus presently provides for those in need through his people, through the church. Uh, the church has been known throughout history for its great efforts to care for the needy and the vulnerable. Uh, we are the body of Christ, and when we love the unloved or provide for the needy or protect the vulnerable, we do it in the name of King Jesus. It's him caring through us. And that's why there's this call for God's people to love those around them, and to care for the needy and the poor. Second, you know, the church may love the poor, but the church does not crush the oppressor. Uh, we, we may seek justice from the civil ruler, but we are not that ruler. Paul says the civil ruler is God's servant to administer justice and punish the wrongdoer. And so there is a real sense in which Jesus today brings justice to the needy through the civil ruler. 
And of course, we as the church should call them to that task. You see Paul throughout the book of Acts calling the civil ruler to fulfill his role to administer justice. We can do the same thing. But you may have noticed that there are still plenty of poor and oppressed in the world and plenty of oppressors getting away free. And so that can't be the end all and be all of the way Jesus cares for the poor. And so third, the scriptures promise a future reckoning. King Jesus will return. He will call every pastor, every president, and every person to give an account for what he has done in the body. And on that day, scriptures tell us he will humble the proud and the oppressor and exalt the humble. But you may wonder, okay, so there's this promise Jesus is caring for people through the church, through other means. Uh, He's going to put things right. How do I know? How do I know that King Jesus is so concerned about justice and about the poor? Well, that brings us to the fourth way that King Jesus cares for the poor. We tend to think of the poor as simply the economically poor, and of course that's true, but there are other kinds of poverty. Scripture teaches that we are all spiritually poor. We're not only physically needy, but also spiritually needy. And Jesus came as king, as ruler, not to make himself great, but to identify with the poor and the needy. He became like us. He identified with us in our physical poverty. He had little in life, not even a home. He identified with the oppressed by being oppressed. He identified with those who experienced injustice by being falsely accused and condemned and put to death at the cross. He identified with us in our spiritual poverty, in his baptism and at the cross. And why would he do all that? Well, because as verse 14 says, precious is our blood in his sight. So precious is our blood to him that he shed his blood in our place. Why would he do that? To free us from the great oppressors of Satan and sin and guilt and death. See, at the cross, Jesus went to battle as our king with Satan, sin, guilt, and death. And the resurrection is Jesus' victory. Jesus literally spent his life caring for the poor and needy. And now he delivers us when we call, as verse 12 says. He delivers us from sin, delivers us from temptation and evil. He delivers us out of trials and trouble. And even when we undergo serious trouble in this life, even when we wait for deliverance in this life, but it does not come, we have the hope of deliverance in the life to come. The one who died for us will not now abandon us, but will deliver his needy children throughout this life, but finally on the last day at his return. And so what kind of a king is Jesus? Well, he is a king who cares for the needy even to the point of shedding his own blood. Point one, he cares for the needy. Two, he unites the nations. You know, politics is as divisive as ever in America and most people in our country have little hope of bipartisan agreement on almost any issue. And of course, that's just within our country. There are national and international divisions, ethnic and economic divisions, cultural and religious divisions. Where do you look to find some hope for any kind of meaningful unity and peace? Well, a kind of political unity is central to what we find in this psalm. Again, a unity of people around a particular person. Look at verses 8 through 11. Psalm says, Solomon says, may he, may this king 
have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Then verse 15 picks it up. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. See, Jesus' kingship is about the nations. It is about the nations recognizing this Jewish Messiah as the one true king of heaven and earth. Now, that may seem outlandish, but realize that, that over the past 2,000 years, Jesus' kingdom has begun to cover the globe, meaning that almost in every nation under heaven, people have bowed their knee to King Jesus. And that will continue until Jesus' return. People coming to know him who are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now remember, the body of people over whom Jesus rules is the church. But that's not any particular church merely, but the church as a whole. What we sometimes call the church universal, the church as it is in every time, in every place, of which particular churches are only a part. See, any particular church is just a part of Jesus' whole kingdom. And so there are churches in Africa and Asia, Australia, North and South America, and every other place on the globe. They are all a part of Jesus' kingdom. And all who fall down before him are members of his kingdom, are under his reign. See, Jesus has done by his death and resurrection what no earthly king could do. He has begun to unite the nations. By dying on the cross, Jesus left behind the divisions of this age, black and white, male and female, rich and poor, and he rose from the dead as part of the age to come, where these old divisions have no teeth. Right? The New Testament is very clear that in Jesus there is no Jew or Greek, meaning ethnicity, nationality, race, culture. These give no one special place in Jesus' kingdom, nor do they hold anyone back. They don't disappear in the church, but they become irrelevant in terms of our standing with God or our status in the kingdom. We stand before God not as citizens of the U.S. or of China or of Iran or Indonesia, but in Christ, and by faith in Christ, we are simply citizens of heaven. The nations are united in him. So what kind of a king is Jesus? Well, he's a king who cares for the poor and unites the nations. Third, he causes creation to flourish. You know, one of the, the perennial challenges of leadership is, is at least the idea of scarcity. Do we have enough to go around? Is there enough money, enough food, enough energy, enough homes, enough jobs? And what politician hasn't promised greater prosperity of some kind? But it's often the promise of prosperity for one group of people at the expense of another. But no matter what politicians may do, they are always limited, right? Limited by natural resources, limited by the challenges of living in a fallen and broken world. The very first curse on the man, you may remember in Genesis chapter three, is cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. See, we live in a world that is working against us. No matter how many times we weed the garden, thorns and thistles still grow. This is what makes Solomon's prayer so outlandish. Verse 3, Solomon 
praise, uh, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Verses six and seven, he says, may he, may the king be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Verse 16, he says, may there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Notice as you, as you read those verses, it almost seems as if, as if Solomon can't decide whether he's talking literally or metaphorically. Uh, he kind of moves back and forth between the mountains and the hills and grain and fruit and the righteous and the people of the city, all flourishing. Everything is flourishing. Solomon envisions a day where there will be an abundance of grain, where even on the tops of the mountains, which maybe the point is there, uh, a place that's really inhospitable for growing crops, even on the tops of the mountains, there will be these amber waves of grain. Isaiah envisions this day as well. He envisions a day of fulfillment, a day of prosperity, when not the king, as in verse 6, but God's word will be like rain. God's promises will all come true, and the result will be both joy and prosperity. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, prosperity is the hope of God's people. Now, the problem is we tend to turn that into the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel is something like God wants you to be happy. Therefore, he wants you to have all the stuff that will make you happy. Well, on the one hand, God does want you to be happy even now. But he wants you to be happy in him, as we talked about last week. He wants you to find your joy and delight in him but in terms of, of physical or material prosperity, we need to understand the pattern of the cross. Jesus was the most, most faithful servant of the Father, but he suffered. He underwent persecution, injustice, hunger, and thirst. And only in the resurrection does Jesus experience the fullness of joy that's at the Father's right hand. In the resurrection, Jesus enters into this new age, not an age characterized by death and decay, but one characterized by power and life. See, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation when the mountains and fields will flourish, when thorns and thistles will be no more. But Scripture now calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus and to know that in this life we will we'll experience joys and sorrows, plenty and want, fruitfulness and thorns and thistles, but that in the life to come, at the resurrection, when the new creation comes in fullness, the very ground itself will flourish in ways hitherto undreamt of. Jesus as king does not simply have to figure out how to manage the fall, how to shuffle around limited resources, but by his resurrection, he brings about new creation. And that begins in us now by the Spirit through faith, but it culminates 
when the whole world will be made new on the last day. That is our hope. This, by the way, shows the relative powerlessness of the politics of our age. You remember Pontius Pilate had the power to put Jesus to death, and so he did. Pontius Pilate had that power, he exercised that power, but Jesus burst apart the bonds of death and entered into a new creation. Once for all, showing the powerlessness of the powers of this age and the power of the kingdom of the age to come. So what kind of a king is King Jesus? Well, he's one who cares for the poor. He's one who unites the nations. He's one who causes creation to flourish. And the last two I'll put together, uh, he will rule forever and his name is above all names. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations come and go. Uh, Even particular churches, right, are here one day, gone the next. But the kingdom of Jesus will never end. He has risen from the dead. Verse 17 says, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. And it will. That is what the resurrection ensures, right? Kings are born and die. Presidents are voted in, serve their term, and pass into history. Even when we get our person elected, whoever that happens to be, it's only for four years or at most eight. In other countries, we have seen in the past 20 years, uh, rulers and regimes overthrown, it seems like, every year. And the best of rulers who are able to hold on to their power, they eventually die. But Jesus rose from the dead. His kingdom will literally have no end. In fact, it will only grow. There is no one like King Jesus. Other politicians, right, are brought down by scandal. There seem to be skeletons in every closet. None is immune because we're all sinful. We want our names to be glorified, but if people just scratch the surface, they see below the gold plating is a world of sin and shame. But not so with Jesus. He is perfect and sinless and good, and he has been given the name, Paul tells us, that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, whatever men might say here and now about King Jesus, one day all will bow the knee. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. We either bow in worship and wonder as his beloved children, or we bow in defeat and shame as his conquering and conquered enemies. So why should you bow the knee to King Jesus now? Well, he is like no other king on earth. He cares for the poor, including us in our sinful state. He unites the nations. In him there is no Jew or Greek. He causes creation to flourish, bringing in his resurrection a new creation. He will rule forever. His name is above every name. There is no one like him. So that leads us to the last point then. Okay, let's look to King Jesus. Let's serve him as our king, recognize who he is. What does it mean then to live as citizens under Jesus' reign? And I'll just say two things, two basic things. One is hope in him. The other is serve him. Hope in him and serve him. Jesus is a king who died for his subjects. Know that he loves you. Know that you can trust him. Jesus is also a king who rose from the dead. Know that he can fulfill his promises. Not even death can stop him.
from fulfilling his promises. Death itself could not hold him, and death itself will not hold his people. He has conquered our greatest enemies, and he will squelch every remaining insurgency of Satan, sin, and death in this life, and they will be no more, and he will win. Trust your king, right? He, he loves you. He has conquered death. He will make all things new. He has done, is doing, and will do what no politician in this life can do. He loves you. He's defeated death. He's brought new creation. Trust him. Cry out to him. Wait on him as a good king who will care for his subjects. What does it mean to live as citizens under Jesus' reign? One, we put our hope in him. Two, we serve him. We serve him. What does that mean? What does it mean to serve King Jesus? Well, one, it means you bring your life in line with his rule. Become a person who is consistently seeking to obey King Jesus. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, okay, you draw near to him. You uh, are transformed by him and by his spirit. You look at his word and you do what it says. Will we fail? Of course we will. <laughs> But we strive together as the church, as his people, in our weakness, by the power of the Spirit, to become like Christ. Serve him by seeking to bring your life in line with his rule. Second, serve him by orienting your life toward his glory. You know, once upon a time, people talked about doing things for king and country. Uh, your life is no longer about you but it's about your king and his country. As the rule of your life is now the word of Jesus, so the goal of your life is now the glory of Jesus. To him every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and that is our joy and delight, that our king is glorious and will be glorious and will be seen as glorious for all eternity. Three, serve him in your work. So serve him by bringing your life in line with his rule. Serve him by orienting your life toward his glory and serve him in your work. Whatever you do, right? whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what that is. Colossians chapter 3 says, Bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, whatever you do, every day, you are serving the Lord Christ. If you are a garbage man, be a garbage man for Jesus, right? If you are an artist, be an artist for Jesus. If you are a school teacher, be a school teacher for Jesus. If you are a student or researcher or banker or businessman, do it for him. Serving him in your work. Now, serving him in your work may or may not change what you do. It will change the way that you do it. Of course, if you can't in good conscience do what you do for Christ, then you probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But otherwise, what changes is not the work itself, but the one whom you serve in that work. And so you begin to bring all of your work to the foot of the cross as an offering to your king. You are serving the Lord Christ. Hope in your king. Serve your king. 
because he is worthy of your allegiance. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would show us the glory of your Son, Jesus. We pray that we would see his glory as our King, that we would rejoice in that, that we would marvel at that, that we would wonder at that, that we have a King, such a King, a King who cares for the poor and the needy, a King who is uniting the nations through the gospel, a King who causes creation itself to flourish, a King whose kingdom will never end, and whose name is above all names. Help us to serve this King, this King of love, this King of grace, this King who first served us in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.